We're going to interrupt things here for a second because we've received breaking news from the UK. Terrifying figures have been released British by the Prime government Minister today Boris showing Johnson exactly has been why moved they moved to lockdown the country. This morning, some potential good news. Theoretical modeling would suggest that a possible flattening of the curve. COVID-19. The novel strain of coronavirus, which has taken the world by storm, was first reported to the World Health Organization on December 31, 2019. The virus began in the city of Wuhan, China, at a wet market. This is a type of market that sells live meat, fish, and produce. On January 11, 2020, China reported its first death from coronavirus right before its biggest holiday, the Lunar New Year. China soon went into lockdown to stop the spread of the disease, but in this internationally-minded world, it was too late. By January 21st, Japan, South Korea, Thailand, and the United States had all reported cases of the novel form of coronavirus. The first death outside of China was reported in the Philippines on February 2nd. France announced the first death in Europe on February 14th, and on February 29th, in Washington state, the CDC reported the first death in the U.S. as a result of COVID-19. On March 11th, the outbreak was declared a pandemic by the World Health Organization. The U.S. has since become the country with the most confirmed cases of COVID-19 as of April 2nd, 2020. COVID-19 is a respiratory illness that is spread from person to person through either droplets or aerosols. If a person touches an object that has droplets of the coronavirus and then touches their eyes, nose, or mouth, they can contract the illness. Activities that spread the virus through this method include shaking hands and touching hard surfaces. Aerosol spread is when droplets from a person's cough hang in the air and can infect another person, typically within six feet. The symptoms of coronavirus include fever, cough, and shortness of breath. The severity of the symptoms can range from being asymptomatic, having no symptoms, to being so severe people require hospitalization. Even if a person shows no symptoms, they can still spread the virus. The best way to prevent COVID-19 is to wash your hands frequently for 20 seconds with warm water and soap, to avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth, and to stay away from other people. To mitigate the spread of COVID-19, Governments at the local, state, and federal levels are using available powers to facilitate a practice known as social distancing. State and federal level stay-at-home orders are meant to achieve social distancing by requiring people to remain home and avoid contact with others. Essential travel, such as grocery shopping, is exempt from such orders. However, while they are out, people are directed to maintain at least a six-foot distance from others. COVID-19 is especially dangerous for people over the age of 65 and those with underlying health conditions. Social distancing helps prevent the spread of the disease to vulnerable populations, slows the spread of this virus to flatten the curve, which helps to decrease the risk of overwhelming hospitals, and increases the opportunity for those who do fall ill to receive the best care possible. This is the reason why events like the NCAA March Madness Tournament, concerts, and conferences have been canceled or postponed. So, that was a lot of information. It's been an incredibly crazy, overwhelming, and stressful time. Many of us are wondering how did we get here and when will this end? We took some time to speak with University of Michigan alumnus, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, a public health expert to help everyone better understand the current crisis. 
Dr. Al-Sayed received his doctorate in public health at the University of Oxford and obtained his MD at Columbia University, where he also served as a professor of epidemiology. He later went on to serve as the youngest health commissioner in the history of the city of Detroit. In 2018, Dr. Al-Sayed ran as a candidate in the Michigan gubernatorial Democratic primary. His new book, titled Healing Politics, was released on March 31st and aims to diagnose our country's epidemic of insecurity and the empathy politics we will need to treat it. He also hosts a podcast called America Dissected, which tackles America's biggest health problems and their solutions. Season two of America Dissected focuses on the COVID-19 pandemic, with new episodes released every Tuesday and Friday. Before we hear from Dr. Al-Sayed, we wanted to formally welcome you to Apodcalypse, a limited series brought to you by the entire Michigan Daily podcast section. You're currently hearing from the team who normally brings you the Daily Weekly. We're still reporting the news, just under a different title this time. We're your hosts, Sonia Vogel, Gerald Sill, Doug McClure, Rachel Fagan. Stay tuned. We spoke with Dr. Al-Sayed in the afternoon of March 27th. His professional experience in both public health and politics opened up a lot of doors for a holistic discussion about the COVID-19 pandemic. With so much news covering every aspect of this crisis, we opened the interview by asking Dr. Al-Sayed about the major misconceptions he heard surrounding the virus, including myths around treatments and vaccines. Number one, uh, coronavirus is just a lot more infectious than uh, than the flu is. Um, put in perspective, epidemiologists measure this number called R0. Uh, it looks like R0 when you read it. Um, and R0 tells you how many cases can usually come from one case of a given disease. So for the flu, R0 is 1.4. For coronavirus, it's somewhere between 2 to 3.5. Um, and let's just say it was 3. Um, and so put in perspective... Um, if you if you multiply out one times one point four times one point four times one point four across ten generations, you end up having about fourteen cases. Um, whereas uh, whereas when you multiply it um, for coronavirus, you end up having about fifty nine thousand. Um, so this is just a lot more infectious than the flu is. Second, um, it's uh, a lot more deadly. Um, we know that the even in a bad year, the flu kills about 0.2% of people who get it, whereas coronavirus kills between 1% uh, and 2%. Um, and so it's just a lot more deadly. Three, uh, we have no baseline immunity to coronavirus. We've only ever had it in humanity for five months, uh, whereas we do for the flu. Four, there is no coronavirus uh, vaccine. There is a flu vaccine. Number five, there is no coronavirus treatment. There is a flu treatment. And number six, um, imagine you took all of the flu cases uh, that occur over a bad flu season, let's say from you know September to March, um, and then you concentrated them on the health system for like four weeks. Um, and so all the cases hit at once. That's that's what we're dealing with here. So that's misconception number one. Misconception number two um, is that you know there's a there's a there's a vaccine right around the corner. Um, we just hit phase one on the first candidate vaccine. Um, and a phase one trial normally takes about fourteen months. 
And so even if that one is safe um, and does uh, produce the biological response that we'd expect, you'd expect another four months um, for phase two and three. And then it would be the manufacturing, which, you know, for a global level pandemic, you're talking about trying to manufacture uh, in the billions of um, doses, which is not easy to do. Um, and so it's not right right around the corner. And then lastly, um, there are some of these crazy, you know, things like garlic, uh, kills the coronavirus or, um, my, my mother-in-law told me about a viral WhatsApp chain, uh, that if you blow dry the inside of your throat, you won't get coronavirus, uh, which just sounds like a really obnoxious and very, um, uncomfortable thing to do. Um, none of these things will protect you. Um, the most important thing you can do is stay home, stay away from people. Uh, generally, um, wash your hands, uh, make sure you don't touch your face. Um, and, uh, you know, and, 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 and then while you're, um, inside, uh, check in on, on your loved ones, don't visit call. Um, and, uh, and, and make sure that you're, you know, spending time with your loved ones. So, um, you, you know, you don't go uh, stir crazy. As Dr. El-Sayed mentioned, there are a lot of misconceptions and rumors circulating everywhere, from private messages, within trusted news sources, and even from the U.S. president. We wonder how the circulation of false facts has impacted the spread of coronavirus. Could herd immunity be the solution? Dr. El-Sayed will explain. You know, with every epidemic, you also have an infodemic where uh, you have these, you know, crazy conspiracy theories and you know, absurd home remedies that don't work. Um, and it hurts our ability to take this on, right? And I think the most dangerous one right now is that um, it's no big deal. And the, the hard part about that is that this one, this particular, um, you know, absurd um, conspiracy theory or um, absurd hypothesis is being peddled by the president. Um, it's not a big deal. We can open up by Easter. It's just like the flu. That's garbage. It's not true. You shouldn't pay attention to it. You shouldn't believe it. And if you ever hear it, uh, you've got to address it. Um, and so... Uh, and so these really hurt our ability to address this, particularly given that right now we're in the process of trying to beat this thing through mitigation, um, through social distancing. And uh, folks who don't really want to do that um, are just using these, uh, these, these absurd hypotheses being pushed by uh, the president to justify themselves. And, um, and that's really dangerous because uh, when the disease spreads among people who don't practice social distancing, it hurts all of us, not just them. It hurts all of us in the long term, like years from now, herd immunity will develop. But the idea that we just got to wait out the development of herd immunity is absurd. And let me explain why. Herd immunity is the immunity that you get in effect from other people, right? When other people are immune to the disease, whether because they've had it and now are immune, uh, which we also don't know to be the case, we think it's going to be the case, but we don't know it to be the case with, with coronavirus, um, or because they've had a vaccine, um, every time there's more immunity around you, more immune people around you, your probability of getting the disease goes down simply because your contacts are less likely to have the disease because they're immune. So <clears throat> once you get to about 50% or 60% immunity with this uh, disease, given the reproductive rate that we talked about, um, you have what, what's called herd immunity. That means that the other you know, 50 to 40% are, are largely protected because the 50 to 60% who are immune are out there among them. Here's the problem, is that in the absence of a vaccine, which is the way we normally talk about herd immunity, in the absence of a vaccine... Um, you now have to wait for 50% of the population to get it. And for 50% of the population to get it at 1% mortality, right? You're talking about 175 million people. That's 50% in the United States. 
1% of mortality means 1.75 million people would die and before we got herd immunity. That's not something I'm willing to withstand. And that's also the whole point. Like the whole point of doing all this is to protect those 1.75 million people. That's a lot of people. Um, and, you know, 1% of everybody is like just I want you to think about how many hundreds of people you know, right? Now for every hundred of them, one of them dies. Like I, I don't – that's not – that's not the society I want to live in. Um, and so I'm far more willing to do this to protect that one out of every 100 people um, and uh, and wait this out and let this disease uh, fizzle out than I am uh, to watch those people die unnecessarily uh, when uh, we should have prevented this and we can stop it now. False or bad information not only causes problems when dealing with a pandemic, but bad information or bad planning could have also contributed to allowing the pandemic to occur at this magnitude in the first place. Could the pandemic have been avoided? What are the underlying causes of the outbreak in our country and our state? And how might our healthcare system have played a role in it? I, I do believe it could have been prevented. And the reason why it wasn't prevented is the same reason why we are so vulnerable to it. Um, you know, in our society, we have made a decision that uh, we would rather uh, cut funds for, for basic government operations like public health and pass large tax cuts for major corporations um, than, uh, than be safe and protected from things like this. And <clears throat> the thing about preparedness is, uh, you know, you, you never think you need preparation until you're unprepared. Um, and, um, and here we are. And so this was preventable. Um, we should have prevented it. We did not have the means of that prevention in place in time. We did not have an adequate government response in the moments that we could have contained this. Um, we didn't have the testing in place to do it. Um, and uh, and since, um, you know, our, our, unfortunately, people in our society haven't been willing to invest in what it takes to be able to mitigate this thing uh, and get it under control, right? You, you had uh, spring breakers two weeks ago on the on the beaches and the the consequences of that are just bearing out now, right? That's the, the nature of an incubation period of two weeks is that what happens two weeks ago, that's that's what you see today. Uh, and what we're doing today is going imp- to impact two weeks from now. Um, and so, you know, this is part and parcel of a, of a broader governing consensus that I think has failed our country for a very long time. Um, one uh, that has left us deeply vulnerable as a people, the same governing consensus that leaves us uh, with 10% of our population without health insurance and another 50% having their health care behind a paywall. It leaves us uh, working gigs instead of jobs. It leaves us uh, very, very uh, vulnerable to loss of housing and, um, you know, leaves uh, folks like you and even my generation strapped with $1.5 trillion in debt, uh, a debt level that is greater than the GDP of three other countries. Um, so, you know, we, we, we in this society, uh, I think, have a long way to go and a decision set to make when we are done with this. And we will be done with this about whether or not we ever want to build a society that is so vulnerable to something like this ever again. This issue, this moment uh, will define the future of our politics for generations to come. Um, and I hope we make the right set of choices. It seems as if going through this pandemic will result in permanent changes to our society. One of those places will inevitably have to be in healthcare. With so many healthcare workers without proper personal protective equipment, a lack of available space in healthcare facilities, and so many more pending problems, it's difficult to imagine that there won't be long term changes to the current healthcare system. During his 2018 gubernatorial candidacy, Dr. El-Sayed ran a progressive campaign that was in support of Medicare for All. Could Medicare for All have helped offset the crisis we have now? Yeah, I'll I'll say three ways. Number one, um, 
10% of Americans don't have healthcare coverage. I mean, that's that, that in and of itself is absurd. Um, and under Medicare for all, they would have. And so, you know, early on, uh, you have, you had a, a moment where people, um, are suffering these nondescript symptoms of a fever and a dry cough. You know how many people suffer a fever and a dry cough and choose not to get healthcare, uh, anyway, simply because they don't have the money to pay down their deductible to get the insurance they already paid for if they have insurance. And then the 10% of people who don't seek care because they just don't have health insurance. Um, and you, you think early on in this, uh, in this, this, the, 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 the development of this pandemic, um, having people choosing not to seek care, uh, when they have symptoms of something like the coronavirus, because they've learned not to, because our health system doesn't include them, um, leaves us very vulnerable. So that's number one. The second reason is because of the structure of our healthcare system, uh, which relies on a profit margin for hospitals. And they make most of their money in elective surgery, uh, which they have to cut in the context of the pandemic and uh, now are without the funds that they need in the moment where we need them most. And so they're on the verge of bankruptcy in the context of a pandemic. And then the, th the third reason Medicare for All um, would have uh, protected us is because Right now, there is no incentive in our healthcare system to prevent anything, right? The health system makes money because people get sick. Um, and so if we had a government healthcare system that has an incentive to keep people healthy, then maybe we would be investing more than 3% of our overall expenditure on healthcare on prevention, which means more money for the CDC uh, and other institutions predicated on keeping us healthy. Not only has COVID-19 had an impact on public health, but also on our economy. Dr. Al-Sayed helped break down the recent $2 trillion congressional stimulus package and how it will affect Michiganders and students. Yeah. So first, I want to be clear um, that this stimulus package is really, really critical because for a lot of folks, social distancing meant doing what they needed to do to save lives, but also potentially losing their livelihoods. And with this stimulus package that um, puts money in, in people's pockets and uh, you know, extends unemployment insurance and provides lifelines for small businesses, um, it takes away that choice and allows people to really um, engage with social distancing and do what they need to do to, to, to be a part of stopping this disease, even while uh, knowing that there's going to be some relief for them economically. So in that respect, it is a real public health intervention. At the same time, I take deep issue with the choices that were made. I mean, we don't see any relief for the homeless. It doesn't do anything about uh, the population of incarcerated people in our society who are really suffering this. Um, it does very little uh, to address the the real burdens that people have to um, to take on every month in their payments, whether it's a student debt payment uh, or it is something you know as pedestrian as a cell phone payment, which is a complete necessity nowadays. Um, but what it does do is it provides $500 billion in corporate bailout money um, and albeit with with some oversight from Congress and uh, special special inspector general uh, in the Treasury Department, um, but five hundred billion dollars for corporate bailouts right now without you know basic uh, basic conditions like you know don't lay your people off or um, don't use that money for stock buybacks like that to me seems to be a failure to learn from 
what happened in uh, the Great Recession. So I would have rather seen all of that money go um, toward individuals and to support people um, rather than to support corporations. After all, it is taxpayer money. We will be paying the burden of this over the long term. Um, and bailing out corporations, to me, doesn't seem to be the most important priority. Um, at the same time, you know, this is not the same as 2008, where you know you had a banking industry that ran amok and then has to be bailed out because you know after it threw the the global economy into a tailspin. You know, if you're the airline industry right now, you didn't cause the pandemic, um, and you're in a position where nobody's taking flights, rightly. Um, so, you know, I, I can understand that it's not the same scenario, but at the same time, our responsibility is to the American people right now, and every dollar we are putting toward this should be about them um, and, and not necessarily corporations that haven't shown the best interest for, uh, for the people uh, often in their choices and the way that they conduct business. And so um, this is not the same as 2008, but it still feels like a failure to learn the lessons of 2008. My other issue is that we're, we're literally watching our frontline doctors and hospitals um, struggle uh, without the necessary protective equipment that they need to just take care of themselves while they're taking care of all the rest of us and our, and our loved ones uh, in the hospitals. And um, it, this, this, this bailout puts about $100 million toward the hospitals. That's only 5% of the overall, um, of the overall disbursement. And if you think about it, like the whole point of COVID, right? The, the reason it's so dangerous is because it's going to overwhelm our health system. It seems to me that putting as much money as we could toward, uh, toward reinforcing our health system might be a good idea. Finally, there's something that has likely crossed everyone's mind at some point. When is this quarantine going to end? Well, we don't know. With so much left unknown about the behavior of this virus, we are all in the dark about how long social distancing may need to be in place before life can continue in a non-remote fashion. We wonder not how long quarantine will last, but what it will take for quarantine to end. Yeah, we're going to have to see sustained decreases in the number of cases every day to the point where we feel like we can get back to uh, the ability to contact trace every single case um, and ultimately end the pandemic. Um, we are in the driver's seat here, right? And I know folks like to say the virus, that's the, the choice we do. We decide as a society whether or not we are willing um, to invest in the social distancing and do the work it takes to prevent the spread of the disease such that we can get to a point where our public health infrastructure can take over again and uh, we can mitigate this thing uh, fully. So, you know, I, you know, the virus doesn't set that curve. We do. We decide. Um, and so every time you see your friends uh, choosing, you know, maybe not to socially distance, remind them, right? If, if you don't like this, the only way around it is through it. And so we have to decide that we're going to move through it and that we're all going to abide uh, by what it takes to limit the spread of the disease right now. And so, um, you know, that's what we're going to have to see. The metric is is a, a consistent, persistent reduction of cases beyond a point uh, to where we can contact trace it. Um, and what it's going to take is all of us uh, tucking in, um, doing the collective work of stopping the spread of this thing. Michigan has been one of the hardest hit states in the country, and the spread of the virus has impacted the entire University of Michigan community. On March 11th, students and staff received a much anticipated notice that the University of Michigan had canceled in-person classes for the rest of the winter 2020 semester, 
and had moved classes online. As time has passed, more pieces of the University have gone remote. Libraries have closed. Labs have ceased operation. Many students have returned to their hometowns. And, slowly, our once bustling campus has gone quiet. We wanted to hear from the Michigan community about how the virus and the response has affected them. Many of us have had to move, lost jobs, had to adjust to a new way of learning, and been separated from the community and friends we love. Here are some of your stories. As the situation rapidly developed around the world, university students enrolled in study abroad programs received notice that their programs were canceled and that they should return to the United States as soon as possible. According to one Ross Jr., who was studying abroad in Barcelona, Spain, the crisis didn't fully hit Barcelona until the European travel ban was announced. It was the night of March 10th when the University of Michigan announced that all students in Spain would have to immediately return to the U.S. Now, this was a huge shock to all of us because life was very normal in the city. Classes at our host school were still going on. There was a football game just last week. All the bars and clubs were still open. No other university had pulled their exchange students from our program. About 24 hours later, Trump announced the travel ban, which would go into effect within 48 hours. My friends and I were out for dinner when we found out and we all ran home. In the following hours after the announcement, there was no clarification really on whether or not it would affect US citizens, residents, whether flights would still be operating. There was so much uncertainty and it created a lot of mass panic. I had a 500 euro one-way flight to go home the next day in my car. And by the time I went to put in my credit card information, it jumped to over a thousand euros. I had some friends who booked a flight home to leave within the next five hours. So they packed their entire apartment immediately and ran to the airport that same morning. The narrow streets outside of my friend's apartment, which is usually pretty spotless, was filled with trash, mattresses, clothes, furniture. Hundreds of students were evacuating out of the city and they were just throwing their garbage in the streets. By the next morning, a one-way flight out of Barcelona costed nearly $2,000. None of us could imagine how quickly this had all transpired. Then, two days later, a national state of emergency was declared in Spain, and the entire country was on lockdown. The university had initially stated that residence halls would remain open. However, on March 17th, a message from the university instructed students to return to their permanent residences, if possible. After some confusion regarding the previous housing announcements, it was clarified that students who needed to remain on campus due to personal reasons were able to, but they would be consolidated into West, South, and North quadrangles. Students were given incentive to move out of their on-campus residences. Those who moved out by March 25th were given a $1,200 room and board refund. Was this refund really enough? Engineering sophomore Joshua Sadikoff believes that students living on and off campus deserve more justice than they have received in the light of this crisis. In this time of nearly unprecedented international struggle, we have turned to our most respected institutions for support. I thought I could count on the university to lead by recognizing the vulnerability of its community. It's now clear this was a mistake. Students whose lives are dictated to a high degree by the decisions of the administration were left wanting for information, and when they received it, it was vague or inflammatory. Students who relied on the university for room and board 
were pushed out and provided only a fraction of their cost of living as a refund to make do with during these financially tumultuous times. And students who are particularly unstable as a result of holes in the congressional stimulus bill are being compelled by their landlords to continue paying inflated rent costs in a town that many have already vacated. I feel betrayed, and I suspect many of my peers do as well. And I wonder, will they hold the university accountable for increasing and not easing our suffering during this pandemic? This sudden loss of the second half of the winter semester has meant a lot to all our university students, but has particularly impacted seniors. The movement to online learning and necessity for social distancing has resulted in the cancellation of traditional end-of-term events, one of particular importance being the senior commencement ceremonies. Hi, my name is Elizabeth Chan, and I'm a senior studying public policy at the Ford School. So obviously having my last semester cut short and having graduation canceled has been upsetting. Um, And I know that it's been the same for pretty much everyone. But at the same time, there are so many other things to be worrying about right now that I'm actually not thinking too deeply about the loss of my last semester. I'm also trying to put things into perspective. Um, So having my senior year cut short does feel awful, but I'm trying to be conscious of the fact that many, many people in the world right now are going through a magnitude of suffering and devastation that I will likely not have to experience. Um, In regards to the university's response to the pandemic, I think that the administration waited far too long to cancel in-person classes, um, especially given that many students traveled all over the world for spring break. In a situation like this, every day you wait to make a decision, you're putting countless more lives at risk. There's also been a lack of support and tact from the administration in regards to the way they initially asked people to vacate the dorms. Not everyone can just pack up and leave on such short notice because that requires resources that not all students have. There are a lot of equity issues that surface in a crisis like this, and it's really important that students feel like the administration has their backs. The university also instituted a past no-record COVID grading system for the winter 2020 term. This meant that instead of a traditional letter grade, students would simply receive a pass if they got above a C- in their course or a no-record COVID, which means no grade recorded, if they got a failing grade. A pass will give students credit for the course and a no-record COVID will prevent them from getting credit, but neither will impact a student's GPA. Students who wish to will be given the opportunity to unmask their grades and have the letter grade appear in their transcript and impact their GPA. This system was implemented due to the emotional and mental stress as well as health-related issues that many people are facing at this time. There are also many in the Michigan community who do not have access to important resources for remote learning such as a reliable internet connection. The adjustment to online learning has been tremendous for all of us. Students have had to find ways to continue their normal class schedule through computer screens, and professors and graduate student instructors have had to uproot their entire syllabi to be compatible with online learning. Hi, this is Dory Fox. I'm a PhD candidate in the English department and vice president of Graduate Employees Organization. I would say the switch to online teaching has been pretty rough. (laughs) At the time, I was glad. I was like, wow, class is canceled for two days, and we have two days to prepare But I realized, you know, the work that usually goes into preparing a syllabus over the course of a summer or, you know, weeks, I had to sort of throw together and reconceive in a matter of days while, you know, also figuring out how to even press any particular buttons on blue jeans. 
And, you know, it's also just sort of sad because graduate students do a lot of working alone and teaching or research is oftentimes a way to work with other people and be social. So it it does feel like a real loss to not be going in to teach. I'd also say that it's made the work of organizing and our contract campaign more complicated. But I would also say that it helps crystallize for a lot of people why we're fighting for the things we're fighting for, you know, why leave matters, you know, why sick leave matters, why healthcare matters, why stable pay that can help protect you from crises or emergencies are all really important. So even if we're, you know, socially distanced, I still feel inspired to fight for what we're fighting for. I'm Elizabeth Pop Berman. I'm an associate professor of organizational studies in LSNA. I was anticipating that we might move online even by the end of spring break. Well, by that Wednesday afternoon, everything was shut down. And so the next few days were really a whirlwind of deciding what to keep, what to change, and how much to really restructure the class. For me, one big decision was whether to try to keep classes synchronous or to go asynchronous, uh, which is more typical for online classes. But after surveying students and then having a first meeting on blue jeans, it really seemed like students were craving some kind of continuity in the face of all this change. So although I really wanted to be aware that some students might be uh, in less stable situations than others, and some students might have challenges around internet access, uh, we all decided eventually to uh, try to continue having a synchronous class. Uh, I've really been impressed by the grace that everyone has handled this with, and I'm grateful to be part of a community of scholars and learners who are committed to the institution and to one another, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Dr. El Sayed finished his interview by offering words of encouragement and hope for our community in these scary times. So number one, um, you are loved. And I know that the hard part about social distancing is that it often comes with social isolation. Um, and so the most important thing I'd say is, you know, if you're lucky enough to be holed up with somebody who loves you and whom you love, spend some extra time with them. Turn off the news, uh, you know, finish this podcast, then turn it off um, and go do something with them, right? Cook, cook a meal together or, uh, or um, you know, play a game together. Uh, just enjoy each other's company because rarely in our extremely busy lives do we get those moments. And, you know, if there's a silver lining in this cloud, I know for me, is that I've spent a lot more time with my family. I'm often, you know, on a plane at least two or three days a week. Um, and so I don't spend as much time with my, my, my daughter and my wife and my family as, as, as I, I would like to. Um, but I've been here, right? I'm stuck. Um, and that means I spend a lot more time with them. And I, I really am grateful for that, even if it comes in the context of a really uh, trying and anxiety provoking moment. Um, two, you know, don't pretend like it's all okay. It's not, this sucks. Like everybody's scared right now. And if you're not, um, you know, you're, you're not, you're not paying attention. Like this is a scary thing and I get it, but it's okay to talk about it and you probably should. And if you don't need to talk about it, then there may be somebody in your life who does. And I think being able to create that space together is really important. Um, and then number three, uh, protect yourself and protect your family. I know that social isolate, social uh, distancing, which also sometimes means social isolation, is boring. Um, there's less to do, and I know that's hard. Um, but 
the only way around this is through it. So let's tuck in and do it together. Um, and then number four, I really want you to think about the world you want to build because uh, for many of you, you're, um, you know, you're, you're, you're young folks and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of what you can still call young. Um, although I, you know, I, I hope to hope to think my heart is forever young. Um, but, uh, but we get to decide what we build from here. And I really hope that coming out of this, we don't make the same mistakes as the generations that came before us. So remember what this feels like and ask yourself whether or not you ever want your kids or your grandkids or you to have to live through this again. Um, and you know, next time it might not come in the form of a pandemic. It might come in the form of a climate, uh, a, a climate event. And um, we don't know what's coming. We've got a lot of work we, we need to do uh, to fortify um, and protect ourselves uh, as a society, which means fortifying and protecting our most vulnerable um, and building out the government services uh, that can protect us and the things that we need to do um, to halt climate change, uh, to provide folks health care, uh, to empower a more just economy. Um, and I'd be thinking a lot about what, what, what the after pandemic looks like for you um, and, and what we're going to do to build that, that society together. He's looking at you. Thanks for tuning in to the daily weekly segment of Apocalypse. It's with a heavy heart we say goodbye to the short-lived season, but we are already looking forward to more great podcasting in the fall. Thank you to our listeners for all of your support this past semester. For the time being, definitely stick around and check out some of the awesome work done on this series by our other favorite podcasts, Arts Interrupted, Highway to Hail, and Pass the Mic. You can also read all of the latest news about the university's response to the coronavirus on the Michigan Daily website and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. From the entire Daily Weekly team, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. This episode was produced by audio engineer Gibson Gillette Barrons, executive producer Sonia Vogel, and content producers Rachel Fagan, Doug McClure, and Gerald Sim. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Abdullah El-Sayed, Dory Fox, Elizabeth Chan, Joshua Sadikoff, and Dr. Elizabeth Berman for joining us to bring this project together remotely.